Hi everyone, welcome to Football 360 One to One. This episode's guest is Dave Kennedy, uh, soon, to be a, soon to be the Chief Executive Officer of the Jersey Football Association. I can't think of many people in uh, football administration who would be better qualified to take such a role. Uh, he started off as a, a player at Coventry City before playing for Dunfermline, Livingston and Aller Athletic. Uh, and whilst playing in semi-professional leagues up in Scotland, uh, he, did, he, had a, he gained extensive experience as a coach, uh, working with various different age groups, going through his UEFA badges at Largs, which is a, a famous kind of um, producer of coaching talent and managerial talent. Um, lots and lots of uh, fantastic uh, names he's, he's had the pleasure to spend time with during his, his life in football. Um, and then he moved to the Channel Islands in his 30s, uh, where he um, has had a huge influence not only on the results uh, on the pitch for Jersey teams, unfortunately for those who are sort of a Guernsey persuasion, um, he's, he's had uh, a lot of success as a manager, but he, he also has helped to produce some fantastic young footballers, um, put terrific development schemes in place in Jersey. He's worked for the gov government as a sports development officer uh, and he, his influence on not just Jersey football, but Jersey society, I think is, uh, is huge and, and uh, I'm certain that it will continue. That will continue to be the case in his new role. Um, Dave's views on physical literacy for young, young kids and the way that that's, uh, that's changed over the years are really, really interesting. Uh, his views on the game, tactical side of the game, player development, coach mentoring, coach path, coaching pathways. Um, the guy is um, an, an encyclopedia when it comes to football and his experiences in the game uh, and his knowledge is, uh, is something that um, I'm really pleased to be able to, to, to get and, and to share with you guys uh, listening to this or watching this. So uh, I hope you enjoy um, this episode as much as I'm going to. Okay, uh, welcome everyone to the show. Uh, great, to, great to have you all with us, and uh, I'm delighted to have uh, Mr. David Kennedy here with us today. Dave is uh, at the moment is the, is the elect uh, chief executive of uh, the Jersey Football Association, uh, and a guy that I've um, I've crossed paths with more than once in the past. So, Dave, great to have you on, pal. No, thanks for having me on, Kev. Uh, really looking forward to it, actually. Me too, pal. Me too. I think it'll be good. I think it'll be a good one. Right, so without further ado, I'm going to go straight into a few questions as the warm-up. So to start off with your favourite player ever and why? Oh, goodness. Um, I, I would probably have to pitch for Xavi. Um, I, th I think that uh, Xavi, for me, sort of um, broke the mould at the time. Uh, I think, in a, uh, as, as did Pep, obviously, when, with what he did at uh, Barcelona. But I think that uh, just the, the, the sheer... Uh, skill, the trickery, um, that you could see that it was it was a cut above uh, and integral to that Barcelona team, which is probably more well known for Messi and Iniesta. But yeah, for me, Xavi was the it was the engine room. Um, it was the one that absolutely everything went through. Yeah, uh, it's, as much as a you know the the Messi's of this world and the, and the Ronaldo's of this world really express themselves and that creativity, um, Xavi just brought everything together and yeah. the responsibility that he had in a team that was all about getting the ball down, getting it played through the midfield, <clears throat> absolutely everything going through him, uh, the way in which he did that and the quality in which he did that every single year. Uh, that, as, as, as an old-fashioned centre-half, I was just sort of in awe of how someone could actually do that. 
I um, I, I have to say, I know, I know how it feels to be an old-fashioned centre-half, so yeah, I'm with you, he's a class act, absolute class act. Good yeah, show. Yeah. Okay, favourite team ever and why? Oh, I mean, it, um, pro- probably like uh, a lot of young Scottish guys uh, around about um, the late 70s and, and, and 80s that they always looked at Liverpool uh, yeah. for obvious reasons with Dalglish, Souness, Hansen, Nickel. Uh, and it was a real purple patch, obviously. Um, it was, um, you know, particularly just at the tail end of of, of, uh, of Bob Paisley's reign and Joe yeah. Fagan and, you know, their European almost dominance. Um, and it's 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 a time where I, I just start to remember football. Uh, yeah. Sort of, you know, seven, eight-year-old and, and, and remembering sort of watching it and, and, and just being in awe of, of what these guys created and, and how it sort of, how it really... Um, it got me feeling inside and, and remember uh, walking out just kind of whether it be on the street or to the park with your Kenny Dalglish strip on and thinking yeah. that's, that's who I kind of want to be uh, so uh, to, to this day I've always I've always had a soft spot for Liverpool and um, and then of, of course just on, on the back of what I've been saying about um, about Xavi and Iniesta and, and um, it's probably no surprise that uh, I've got to look at Pep's Guardiola side as well, uh, which, as I say, it just brought a new dimension to, to football and, and something of which a legacy to this day still lives on. I agree. I think it's not the first time that uh, that Pep team's been mentioned uh, on these interviews and um, for, for good reason, for good reason, for sure. But that Liverpool team, I remember as a kid, I remember actually not disliking Liverpool because they won everything. I had a kind of irrational dislike for them. Um, but when I look back now and look at the technical quality, particularly the likes of Dalgleish, Hansen, Lawrence, and you know um, Graham Souness, and you know the, the the way that they played and the kind of intricate football that they played at times, which you know people think that the eighties was all about kick and run and and you know just just bomb it. People think about Charles Hughes and you know coaches will will just make glib statements about how poor the football was back then, but they do that in a kind of uninformed way because if you look back and watch some of that football, it was incredible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's almost the the autonomy that the players had as well. And, and I look yeah. at you know players now, Kev. Yes, you have the, those create, creative players, but you know you don't see another Kenny Dalglish in the way that you know not only ways his, his brain moves, but the way in which he moved his body, the way he kind of really backed into people and worked people off the body. Yeah. Um, the the t- you know the telepathy that he had even with Ian Rush at the time. I mean, it's you know when you hear Ian Rush talking about it, you can just see why it really really clicked and. You know, it's it's not something that that, that that you see a great deal of is actually uh, a reliance on the chemistry of how different players use their strength um, for, for for the sake of, of, of the team. Now it's just it's a lot bit more robotic. Uh, yeah. It's much, much more on the tactical side of the games, but the, the autonomy in which they played and, and they used their strengths was, was just incredible. I'm with you. I'm with you. We'll come back to that tactical versus uh, kind of individual characteristics later on, I think. Um, Okay. If you had a cup final with 22 of the greatest players in the world and you had to choose for your team a manager to win that cup final, that one-off game, prepare the team, literally go in that that week and prepare the team for a cup final to win the game, who would you choose? Any any manager past or present? (coughs) Well, I mean... I'm probably going to stick with the Liverpool theme on this one, Kev, uh, because obviously Bob Paisley's record um, yeah. as, as the most successful Liverpool manager, um, which, which is an interesting choice actually when you look at the Peps, the, the Klopp's, and, and, and Mourinho's. 
But actually, the, the reason I go for, for, for someone like Bob Paisley is because um, I've, I've, I've read a lot about him and, and he's clearly was a very introverted character. And when you're an introverted character in a changing room that's got real big personalities, uh, undoubtedly, what you say and how you say it has quite simply got to just be the most logical thing at the right time. And you, whenever you hear play, players talking about Bob Paisley, he didn't say much, but basically when he spoke, you listened. Yeah. So, but we're in a day and age now where you know managers have to be almost the bigger personality than the players. But actually back then, with this, the success and the reason that he won so many cup finals is not because what happened in cup final day. Number one, he, he knew a good player, he spotted a good player, and that was tactically, technically, physically, um, and he, he knew how to just get the best out of people in a very understated way. Yeah. Um, it's something that that probably when you know people when they talk about Liverpool, they're more about Shankly, they're maybe more about Dalglish and uh, but but as I say, Bob Paisley was the, the most successful manager, but because he was an understated person, we don't necessarily shout about it as much as probably what we should do. So oh, yeah. um yeah. You know, and 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 probably as uh, you know, I kind of look at myself and say, what kind of manager would have got the best out of me? And yeah, probably would have been the old-fashioned sort of in your ear hole, the sort yeah. of teacup flying and stuff. But actually, at the same time, clearly the way he was obviously much more methodical and he thought through what he was saying before he said it. That it was hugely, hugely effective. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I, I, I love that you've chosen him. Uh, I, I'm not sure I, 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 he would come to me automatically when you're looking at a one-off game. Um, for, for me, but I love that you've chosen him because I, I, I think I mean he's from a pit village in County Durham where a lot of my family are from. I was born in County Durham, um, yeah. although I grew up in Guernsey, and, and so, but my northeast football roots, you know, I, I'm proud of, and I, and I, and I can, uh, they kind of, I don't know how I can describe it, but but it makes me feel feel proud. Anyone from the northeast <laughs> being mentioned in this in this yeah. title, and uh, I think, and I also just. Any time I've seen footage of him, he had the warmest eyes. He was, you know, a tough man, you know, but but a gentle man. But he had the warmest eyes. You know, he seemed, he seemed to smile with his eyes, uh, and that would clearly get people on side. So great answer, pal. Great answer. And, and the first first time anyone's mentioned Bob Paisley. Yeah. Okay, last question before we get into the into the main event. Um, a little known fact about Dave Kennedy that uh, very few people, other than your nearest and dearest, would know. <laughs> Uh, probably one that uh, when I moved to Jersey, I, I, I was in limbo for about three months till I got my, my development job. And I, I got a job uh, cleaning swimming pools. And yeah. one, of the, one of the first ever one was a, a well-known Premier League uh, chairman who lives over here. Really? Uh, that, I, that, that, wouldn't be, that wouldn't be a former Sunderland chairman, would it? I'm not going to confirm or deny. <laughs> Uh, Jersey's a place of which we have a few chairmen, but it's, that's uh, true. That's true. Yeah, it could be another one as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the reason the reason why I'm not going to confirm or deny is that actually to get into the plant room, which is the mechanics of the swimming pool, to plug everything in. His plant room is actually underneath his swimming pool, and quite simply, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew that I had to unplug something. <laughs> and I said, what happened was I unplugged the wrong one and basically emptied half his swimming pool underneath oh. <laughs> in, in his in his plant room. Which is bad enough in itself that I was kind of walking about in about four feet of, of, of water. But he also used it as a bit of an office and also a bit of a room where he kept all his suits and stuff. So I, probably, I caused in excess of about £8,000 damage, actually. 
And so, so were your services retained then? So, I, as it was, it was. Uh, I've, I've since come to meet him and, and know him quite well. Yeah. But never once have I mentioned it. And uh, <laughs> and and to answer Great your stuff. question, I lasted another two weeks, and I, I kind of thought this isn't for me. Yeah. <laughs> I'll before I go fire. Yeah, it, it doesn't sound doesn't sound like it would be the type of job I'd be any good at either, pal. So, but um, nice one, good. Okay, let's get into it. So, to start off with, I want to I want to talk to you. Uh, you're currently you currently work as in sports development in Jersey. Is that right? Yeah, before, yeah, yeah, yeah. Before you take up the post as CEO CEO of the JFA. So, I want to ask you a, a little bit about. Um, what I would call the PlayStation generation, and, and what sort of challenges do you think we all face? As a, the people who listen to this, uh, many of many of are coaches or are involved in in um, coaching and, and, and kids development, particularly. Um, and I think we all face challenges from this kind of social and psych corners when it comes to um, uh, working with young people today. It's a little bit more complex in terms of, the, like, say, the social and psych corners. How how do you you know what what's your kind of view on that and and how do you, how would you kind of transfer that into probably roles in the future? Yeah, I mean I'd, I'd probably answer that. Kev. I'll, I'll look right back at the very start, which is maybe thirty odd years ago when um, we we didn't really need sports development back then. But all of a sudden, even before PlayStations, uh, that what was acceptable in society became unacceptable very very quickly. And I talk about. Um, Probably, and I'll sound like a dinosaur, but you'll relate to this, is about how we grew up, which was very much on the street. Yeah. And, you know, underneath the street lamps or, you know, in the local park and you were out, out to all hours at night and, you know, many memories of going and fetching the ball from the next door neighbour's garden. And, you know, it was, it was just common practice back then. Yeah. But it just, it seemed to be happening overnight. All of a sudden there was no ball game signs and uh, all the housing estates just cropped up because tolerance levels for young people um, just, just seemed to just grow and grow and grow, and and probably ultimately we were responsible for trying to um, squeeze a problem indoors. And so it's probably no surprise that the PlayStation generation um, yeah. just just followed that. And I think that um, in, in sports development, we've always had to be reactive to, to, to societal changes. And uh, and 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 actually, I think that some sports were better than others. And, and, and to be fair to football, it's probably one of the better examples where they recognised that what we had to do with our young people is, is, is provide programmes that almost replicated street games. Yeah. <clears throat> we knew that if we were going to continue to develop young players, well, actually, a lot of that foundation of which they were built on were, were born from free play of, you know, just the long hours of just kicking the ball back and forward on the street. So, you know, I, I even remember playing things like 15 aside Rangers versus Celtic at primary school. But, you know, just yeah. you were constantly, constantly involved in the game. And so we probably had to react to that. And the way we did it was was probably more professionalise it. And that way we, we, we set up different soccer centres and we, we employed coaches to take more kids and, you know, try to make it much more structured to, to get them out of the PlayStation. But I think undoubtedly there was the, the consequence of that generation is that I, I, I speaking on, on my experience in Scotland, is that I think we missed out on uh, a generation or two of, of players. And, and yeah. I think, you know, undoubtedly, whilst it's not the only reason, I think that our um, club scene and the national team suffered greatly because of that. Um, so I think the challenge is, we've always had to be reactive, the, the challenge now is that society has again changed and that people are busier, yeah. people 
volunteer less. I think that, you know, in the past that we have been more community orientated and uh, it's certainly something I still see living on an island, which I'm sure you, you, you'll, you'll know very well, Kev. Um, but in reality, people just don't have the time. Um, and football in particular, again, is, is a victim of that. That You know, since the, the late 70s to where we are now, um, numbers have always fallen in, 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 in the structured side of the games. And, and even now, um, the, 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 the format of training on a Tuesday, training yeah. on a Thursday, playing on a Saturday, it doesn't fit in for a lot of modern families. Yes, yeah, I agree. So, so, so the, 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 you know, the task at hand really for, for and I've used football as an example, but for all sports is to ensure that, that what we're offering meets the needs of, of society. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, the certainly in recent years, we're, we're much more aware of the barriers. We don't fully understand them. But we're much more aware of the barriers, cost probably being one of them. I think that certainly in the last three, three years, there's been a huge uh, influx in an in in awareness of mental health. Um, yep. you know, we know that you know, we just got to look at the statistics around about childhood obesity, that one in three now is overweight or obese in, in, in the UK. And, um, and back in the 70s, that was one in eight. So, you know, whatever we're doing, Kev, we're we're not doing enough of it because that's, you know, the data speaks for itself. We don't yeah. have an active nation. Uh, so I think that the emphasis now in sports development is, is probably moved more from sport and into physical activity development because yeah. ultimately what will happen is that physical activity underpins sport and sport mm -hmm. development. And in the past, we've always kind of jumped straight to sport development and tried to put on programmes that will entice the next generation of football players or hockey players or rugby players. But actually, it's much more about just getting them off the sofas and find, almost doing physical activity by stealth. Yeah. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, opening ourselves up to different sports that, that in the past uh, people wouldn't have been contemplating. I think things like um, dodgeball is extremely popular now. Yeah. Handball uh, yeah. has been extremely popular in, in, in Europe. And from a football context, we even kind of look at things like futsal now as an example. Now, something you're all well aware of over in Spain, but you know it's something that just in, is starting now to really sort of gain a bit of traction in the UK. It's not something that we have here in Jersey, and it'll be sort of plan, my plans for for the FA. So we've kind of got to try to stay ahead of the curve of societal challenges uh, that is ultimately um, we're, we're not engaging. Uh, the, the amount of, of people that we, we, we should be. Yeah. Uh, and, and that is a challenge, as I say, because there are so many factors that in the past there wasn't. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you, I'm with you. Okay, I mean, it's, in, it's a really interesting topic and we could talk, you know, the, the whole the whole call could, could, could go through this because, I mean, for me, living in Spain, I have a theory that Spain produces so many technical footballers because they're all playing outside. I mean, the weather is, uh, has an impact, but there's so many facilities, so many public facilities. In every, you know, you go to a small village with a population of two or three hundred, and they'll have a three-quarter size 3G that all of the kids will be out playing, or yep. they'll have a salad court or whatever. Yep. And I, I have a, a theory that here that, that the raw materials are and the golden generation, the gold that that kind of golden years, should we call them? Sorry, not the golden generation. Golden years of kind of technical development happen almost by accident here because 
they just, as you said before, the 15 versus 15s, you'll see them on the urbanisations, in the town centres, on the beaches, and it'll be all in. There'll be six-year-olds playing against 12-year-olds, and they'll all be at it. And then when they eventually get to clubs here, they, they start to work on tactical stuff because the technical stuff is pretty much done. And I don't mean it's ever done, yeah. but that that is it's such a different scenario. And the weather, as I say, is a huge has a huge impact, but there's also a lack of health and safety. There's no no ball signs around here, yeah. I can tell you that much. Yeah. And so maybe Spain's 20 years, 30 years behind the UK yeah. in that yeah. respect, because there's less regulation and control, yeah. that, that means that they, that they still have a better production line. What they do after that, my opinion is that, that perhaps Spain is actually behind the UK now yeah. because of yeah. education and what have you. But, yeah. uh, and the other thing I wanted to say on that was, I think a lot of coaches use some of the trends that you've highlighted there as excuses. Mm-hmm. Because it's if everyone bemoans the fact that there's no street soccer culture and your street football culture anymore, there's no more street footballers. Well, it's hard for those coaches yeah. to find find a solution. Yeah, start to produce some. Yeah, it, it, and, and of course that means that the people in, who work in sports development, who work yeah. in in the schools as teachers, yeah. uh, you know, the, the parents, everyone has a responsibility to contribute to that. But I'm not. You know, I, I hear it too many times that, you know, we don't get street footballers to turn up to our sessions anymore. Well, you've got to think on your feet. That's, that's my response to them. Yeah. No, I definitely care. I mean, I, you know, there's a number of things in there. Facilities being one of them. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, obviously, coming from Scotland, I mean, there was a real underinvestment in facilities. Uh, and again, we're very late to the party. And it's only in the last 10 years that we've seen some real investment into to indoor uh, full-size uh, pitches across Scotland now. Um, because ultimately you have to adapt and you have to, have to move on. But no, certainly I, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I think that, I actually think that the excuse that, that, that you talk about for coaches is that they don't actually, don't know what good looks like. Yeah. Uh, you know, what does what does that actually look like in practice? Some of the stuff that we're talking about, about you know, what does a, a physically literate young footballer look like? Well, it's someone that can, you know, jump, kick, uh, head the ball properly, and yeah, it's, it's one that I, I could walk into a school that's just up the road, and I could I could look at the kid and go, that is physically literate. Absolutely, yeah. And a good chance to be fair that they've probably been taking part in a lot of sports. That you know they've been fortunate enough that their parents or their guardians have been supporting them to to, to do that. Um, so it is about creating those opportunities because, as I say, those those, those traits and those fundamental movements that we developed in the streets many, many years ago, um, you've just got to find ways of replicating that. And yeah. it's something that I'm passionate about here in Jersey. It's something that we've developed in the last probably five years as a programme of physical literacy for young people. Yeah. But, you know, we're challenging the PE curriculum and asking, you know what, is it actually fit for purpose just now? Should it be a much more fundamental movement-based uh, PE curriculum? Because ultimately, if we want kids to have the confidence and then go on to have the knowledge about wanting to take part in physical activity and sport, then actually they have to have the fundamental movements to be able to do that. And there's no better way to gain in confidence, actually, if you're good at something. Yeah. What we do is that we push them straight into the sports and say, right, first of all, you know, in a class of 25 here, um, the differentiation across that class of 25 will be enormous. But here we are, we just put them all in the same football lesson and think yeah. that, that they're going to enjoy it. And yeah. the first experience of the game is a very, very unenjoyable one. That's and that's brilliant. then they're gone. You'll never ever get them back. So, you know, let's give this build that base. Let's give them the tools. 
that then once they grow, once they develop, once they're through that golden age of learning, that actually you know, they're, they're then start to think of a little bit about more sport-specific stuff. But yeah. we're obsessed by getting kids into sport as early as possible and thinking that that's the best thing for them. Yeah, and, and specialising in that sport specifically, oh. or, or focusing too much on the the technique, technical or tactical aspects of that sport. Brilliant! Yeah. There's, there's great stuff on physical literacy. Yeah. There, really. Yeah. Okay, pal. We're, we're gonna we're gonna touch on a little bit more. Of the, 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 well, certainly sports development and and and, and into player development um, in a bit. But I want to take it back to your background. So before you moved to Jersey, can you can you just give us a bit of an overview um, of of what David Kennedy uh, experienced in the game before you arrived in Jersey and, and started working in, in uh, sports administration, coaching, and well, you'd already done coaching and, and, and moving on to the uh, to the Ivory Towers before two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I said, well, I, first of all, I was a schoolboy at Coventry City, Kev. Fourteen. That was nineteen eighty-six. That would be, which was actually the year just before the um, the, the one John, FA Cup for me. John Sillett, John Sillett, and George Sillett. Sillett. And he, you know, he was a larger-than-life character, and he, he was brilliant. And and I think my experience at Coventry City was probably replicated all through my career. In that, I saw some of the really good stuff of what it could be like to be a footballer, but also saw the other side. And it's a side that ultimately. I just couldn't get to grips with and, and probably resulted me in having a very, very modest career at best. And what I mean by that is, is that, you know, we went, went down to Coventry City and, uh, you know, you, you, you were actually at that time, you, even the reserves were, were, were mixed in with some of the 13, 14 year olds. You know, that, that was sort of common practice at the time and you were kind of just shoved in. So on you go, try and deal with that. And it was brilliant. Wow. And I can remember actually marking Cyril Regis of all people, you know, who was coming back from injury, and you know, it's just as, as a skinny little Scottish lad to be doing that, it was it was almost surreal. Uh, and what age were you then? Fifteen. Thirteen. Thirteen. Yeah, you know, and I was. You can imagine, I, you know, I was, I was like, I was an absolute beanpole, but um, you know, met I met some real, real characters to this day that I'll always. You know, remember of some of the little things that they did. So, you know, um, Steve Grusevich was a goalkeeper, big Augie, and he made sure that who, whatever youngster uh, came into the it was a Sky Blue Centre, which was the uh, the training ground at the time. He came over and he shook their hand and he, you know, he wanted to know a little bit about you. And and it was just a for for someone who had just sort of turned up on day one to have this this famous first team goalkeeper who was massive coming over and saying, you know, tell yourself and. And, um, and an added bonus to that is that actually Gordon Banks was the goalkeeping coach at the time. Wow. Uh, but you just think, wow, this was just incredible. And I always remember oh. my going down with me and uh, he was very much in awe. I mean, I didn't know a great deal about Gordon Banks so at 13, but uh, it, was, it was just incredible. So it was, um, it, it was a great side, but probably more tainted in the fact that I was a bit of a home bird. Um, I, was, I was an introverted character very much back then. Um, <clears throat> And, you know, it was a six-hour train journey, felt really, really homesick. Uh, and, and probably the environment, I struggled with the environment. And it is something to this day that, that, that I'm really passionate about is creating the right environment for, for young people. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and just being homesick it, uh, was difficult. But, you know, I'm, I'm talking, you know, fondly about the Steve Grusevich and, you know, Brian O'Klein, who was the manager, uh, the, the captain at the time. On yeah. the other side, there were some other guys, and a real letdown for me was David Speedy, who was a Scottish international. Oh, I've heard awful stories about Speedy, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll keep it clean because we're on a podcast, Kev, but uh, it was actually the one that I was really looking forward to because he was Scottish international. Yeah, yeah. yeah. To meet one. 
and we were basically, I always remember, we were just out, it was a really awful, awful day, and uh, we were warming up behind the goals, and the first team basically came jogging over to us, and David Speedy was with them, and I always remember, he picked up a big ball of mud and just threw it at us all, and then gave us the fingers, ran off, and I thought, this is my first sort of experience of this guy. And uh, he came in and he just wanted nothing at all to do with us. And, and to this day, I just thought, you know, I, and, and as you say, I, I've heard lots of stories about, I mean, if that's the type of character he was. So it kind of gave me an insight into to football. Is 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 It's got some amazing, amazing, amazing characters. And I've met more of them than I've met more of the David Speedies over the year. But I said, it didn't work out at Coventry, mainly because I was homesick and I, I was just desperate to get back. And I came back up, up to Scotland, um, and then I played for oh, just uh, very, three months, actually, in my local club, Alawa. Uh, but I was a little bit disillusioned um, with football at the time. And, and, and I just went back to playing in my boys' club. And that was for about three years. And yeah. I was really, really enjoying my football. And, and it was an interesting one. That, that, that sort of period between the ages of 16 and 19, um, we, we play, I played with a local boys' club, a very successful local boys' club. There wasn't a great deal of coaching involved. It was just go and express yourself. And, and we're a good bunch of lads. And unknown to me, actually, um, Dom Ferman had been watching me for about three months and then came in and, and offered me um, a, a contract, which was oh. totally unexpected because my, my sort of dream of becoming a pre professional football player had yeah. long since passed in my yeah. commentary. Probably kind of thought to myself, you know what, that, that, that'll do. I've, I've had a lot more experience for it. But as it was, it was great and it was a very proud moment. And, um, you know, for, for, for to go and sign for them and... Um, uh, I, they, they saw me actually at a cup final. They approached me after the cup final with my manager, and the next day I found myself at um, the East End Park, which is Dunfermline Stadium, um, and, and signing. It was it was it was a really really proud moment, and really? mainly because I wasn't expecting it, Kev. Um, and, and and then that sort of um, that was at the end of the season, so I reported for day one uh, for pre-season training. And again, this is when I, I talk about the good and the not so good. So I walked into the back of East End Park where we were, tra we were training, um, or we were to get a minibus to go to training. And there was nobody on the door to meet you. You just literally walked in this massive stadium. And, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm not sure where I'm going. Still got this, this shy nature about me. And the first team dressing room was straight ahead. So I thought, right, I'll just walk straight into the first team dressing room and kind of see how I got on. Opened the door. And sure enough, there was about 20 first team guys in there. And, and as you can imagine, the crack was flying about. It was just, it was chaos. There was music going. And nobody, but nobody came over to say hello to me, right? Mm -hmm. And it was just, it was like tumbleweed for me. And I was standing there looking about and I'm going, please just ground this, don't up and swallow me. So I had a really, really awkward um, 10 minutes there until actually the kit guy came in and went, you're meant to be next door with the reserves. Um, so I was like, well, at least he's dragged me and he's come into the, you know, he's took me into where I was meant to be. Uh, and that was equally as awkward because we were all in sort of day one and I think quite a few of us had a similar experience. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, you know, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. I was here for a season at Dunferland where I had a handful of first team um, uh, appearances, which was, was great. I, I was fortunate enough to play alongside some really good uh, pros. I mean, at, at that time, Jackie McNamara, who's Scottish internationalist, he, he was right back with with Dunfermline at the time. Um, yeah. You know, and so um, it was it was it was a real eye opener for me in terms of Scottish um, Scottish league football. Which, to be honest, I played most of the season in the reserves. But I think the, the the reason I always sort of touch on that story about walking into the first team changing room is that I remember 
many years later, I took a, a young lad from, from Jersey uh, over to Southampton to sign. Also, a young Jack Boyle, who I, I know that you'll be well aware of. And I am indeed. I've got mainly bad memories of him, to be honest. But <laughs> he's, a, he's a great player, as Jack, and he's been a terrific player for Jersey. For yeah, sure. I mean, it, uh, you know, Jack had just uh, had, had a very good season and, and had just signed off with uh, a great win against Guernsey, which I'm sure will come on to shortly. <laughs> uh, I, I took him over to Southampton uh, to sign and. Um, what happened was we arrived at the airport and Southampton actually employed a guy. He was a really old guy. He must have been in his 70s. And he was the driver to come and get you and to take you into training. Yeah. But his job, whether it was by a young player or an experienced professional that was signing for millions and millions of pounds, his job was to make them feel a million dollars. So he wasn't just driving. And I always remember, I was in the car. Jack was in the back and I was in the front. And all this guy did was tell Jack how everybody's been talking about him, how he's got an amazing career in front of him, how the manager really rates him. And, you know, already here at you're going to be an outside right that's just got this, that, and the next thing. And, you know, Jack walked out of the car at the training ground feeling absolutely fantastic. And I kind of, I kind of thought at the time, I thought, that's what I needed at Dunfermline. Just yeah. come and just say, you know what, heard good things about you, you know, and, um, and just... Create that environment where you you get on the training ground. And you go right. I'm, I'm. I mean, it's it's not it's it's not being soft, is it? It's just it's just sensible. It's just sensible to bring young players in and give them the opportunity to be themselves. So you get to find out what they're all about. If yeah. if they never feel comfortable enough to be themselves, then yeah. you're never going to find out, are you? And, and whatever you've done to get them there in the first place will probably be wasted. Absolutely. I mean, it's an interesting one because. You know, a lot of what I'm saying, and I've, got, I've kind of got a similar experience because I went from, from Dunfermline to Livingston. Um, and, and, and again, probably injury marred my career. Again, I had a handful of first-team appearances. Yeah. But, um, you know, the, the, the sort of the, 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 the not-so-good side of, of football is something that some players talk about fondly. So, see when you hear David Beckham and, and the Neville's talking about Man United, what it was like to be an apprentice at Man United and some of the things that they had to do. And Phil Neville, I remember a documentary saying, probably would be classed as abuse in this day and age. Yeah, yeah, I remember. But character building, you know, and, and, you know, I can't deny that. And, and and probably it was just because of my character, my nature, that I felt uncomfortable in those situations. As I say, I was an introverted character at the same time. So it's probably no surprise that for those boys that really went on uh, to do well in their career and... Um, it's because they were able to cope with that. They probably had more it, resilience to that. Yeah, um, I mean, it's really funny. It's really funny you mention this because as a as a kid who grew up in Guernsey, went to, went to a public school in Guernsey, albeit because I was bright enough to pass me eleven plus. I don't know how. Um, when I went to England and 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 started playing at a, a reasonable level, going in to share changing rooms with you know, players who played yeah. a couple hundred league games. Yeah. Uh, or they were very seasoned, top-level non-league players. It was a horrible environment at times. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. mean, they were horrible, literally. Yeah. You know, it was just dog-eat-dog. And um, I was told by numerous people, listen, you know, you could be gone next week type of thing, and I could be gone next week as well. And, yeah. and I think for kids who probably, I, I suspect I may well have been a similar character to you, Dave. Yeah. You know, whilst I've got plenty of confidence now as a young kid, I certainly didn't, and I grew up in a, in a sheltered, very happy environment. But yeah, yeah. Never been exposed to a lot of the stuff that, that, that yeah. these these lads have been, and uh, and I, I I do look back on it fondly. I have to say it was the making yeah. of many many respects. Yeah. And, 
doesn't mean that I, I condone some of the stuff that went on. Doesn't mean that um, I think it would be appropriate for these days. But but in terms of the, the you know that phrase character building, it was it made me and, and yeah. my balls grew and I probably always had a little bit of arsehole in me somewhere anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. But there wasn't as much of it, you know, when growing up in Guernsey as there was, you know, so I've been there for, for for six months a year and I'd learned. Always felt as a young player as well, Kev, that uh, coming from Scotland, that uh, I always felt Glaswegians had this much more self-assurance about them. But this yeah. you know, this is Gallus, as they call it in, in Scotland, that uh, yeah. <clears throat> the bit of the swagger, and I always wanted to be that 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 person. And it, uh, and they were the sort of guys that in the changing room, they dominated the changing rooms, and you know, and you just they took that self-confidence out onto the pitch. Um, we always found the Jersey teams had that as, as a you know young, when I was a young player in Guernsey and, and, yeah. and beyond. Yeah. We always thought the Jersey teams had that probably because it's full of Glaswegians. But there you go. Yeah, but interestingly, on, on just to flipping that on its side, I always felt that Guernsey had that bigger chip on their shoulder, and as a result, you always knew you were going to get one hundred and ten percent. Yeah. So you had to if you were going to have that swagger about you. And I remember giving many team talks and we were saying we're actually going to have to match them because they know they're just going to go out and fight for their lives. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. It certainly, it kind of, yeah, it, it, it backs to the walls kind of mentality because you feel like everyone from Jersey comes across and looks down at you a little bit. Yeah. It gives you that little bit more impetus. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that the, the, the going back to the sort of self-assurance side of things, it's, it's something that uh, certainly I've got, as a semi-professional, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed my semi-professional career. It, uh, you know, I had the, probably the best times of my life, to be all honest. And maybe that's because the pressure was off slightly, uh, and it was much more community-focused. And I talk about this environment that people were yeah. just pleased that you were playing for their club, and and that was great. But I think it was only till I really started getting into coaching, and I always remember on my my UEFA B license um, that I would I'd actually I went down. And I would, I'd, by this time, I'd been working hard to, to just get to that level in the first place that I felt I was ready for a UEFA B care. Yeah. And there was, um, let's say, two Scottish internationalists on it. And on day one, uh, you were asked to deliver sort of small sided um, uh, practice. And I think. Is this at Largs? Is it Largs? It's Largs, yeah. Largs, yeah. Scottish Institute of Sport. And um, so my, I, I was sort of thrown into the deep end and, and I was to deliver 3v2s, which, you know, I had done many, many times before. It was something I'd done in previous coach ed courses, uh, more than comfortably do that. And I went and, and, and I thought I smashed it. I was then followed by the Scottish internationalist, who I was actually sharing a room with at the time, uh, who was this self-assured character that everybody was kind of, you know, in the course was quite very much in awe of. And he never had a clue with it, Kev. Didn't yeah. know he hadn't. It obviously made that transition from being into playing, being into coaching, but methodically there had been nothing uh, sort of backing all of that up. He just thought, well, actually, I'll use my experience of, you know, the coaches that I've had over the years, my experience of playing and in certain situations. But in reality, it was a very, very different skill. So this, you know, Glaswegian self-assurance, all of a sudden, I saw yeah. a vulnerability in it. And it was that vulnerability that actually made me grow. And for the rest of course I, I just I thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it and it was almost kind of like it was much more of a making of me as a coach to know that actually if this is where some of these self-assured guys are at and they've had a good professional career but here's me i work my socks off to get to to where i am i'm now starting to see the fruits of that and and i took that on for the rest of my coaching career brilliant brilliant that's, that's, i mean it's a, it's a great observation i mean I, you hear when 
the, the various FAs, the Welsh FA, the Irish FA, Scottish FA, whatever, they, they'll, they'll put out information about a, a, an ex-pro, a high-profile ex-pro taking the course. And the honesty that, that these days and the, and the humility that they demonstrate is great. Yeah. You wouldn't have had it 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. But you've got these, these I can't remember, uh, I think John Terry and, and Gerard have both mentioned it, that you know the first time that they they were they were tasked with leading a session with yeah. young, with decent footballers. Yeah, it's like being a fish out of water. They knew exactly what to do if someone kicked them a ball, in, you know, yeah. Wembley or Stamford Bridge or, or Anfield. But um, you, if, if you know it's pissing down with rain and there's three men and a dog watching your training session, but you've got yeah. four eyes or you know twenty eight eyes or whatever, all on you, expecting you to deliver some yeah. quality and some and, and provide them with guidance on a footballing yeah. front. And it was, it was something completely yeah. different. Yeah, I, I, I feel you. I, I hear what you're saying. And if, and if they're really serious about it, Kev, about actually wanting to reach the top level, I think all your top level managers have been on that journey. Uh, that I don't think there's necessarily this this just sort of jumping in from the playing into the coaching career. And I think that I look at someone like Sean Dyche, a uh, manager I've got a huge amount of respect for because, yes, he went from playing into coaching, but actually, uh, I remember reading about him, they had done a lot of leadership courses, a lot of business yes. courses, yeah. you know, and, and actually, because he's going, well, how, how could you expect a player to stop his career one day, then almost manage a multi, multi-million pound business the next day? You know, yeah. who cares you for that? And I always remember I'd been down to the, um, my license in, goodness me, probably 1990, that would have been, um, no, sorry, 1999, sorry. And, um, I, I'd actually, I was coaching at my local club, Alawa, in, in the under-19s, and I took the under-19s down to be the runners on the on the course, which was brilliant for them because it was, yeah. uh, it was the professional course. It was all the, the ex-pros that were on it. Or some of them right. They got good exposure, yeah, yeah. Great, you know, and, and, and again, looking at the good side of things, there were some guys who came over and, uh, you know, even gave the guys a few bob for coming down and helping them out with their sessions. But I'll always remember that Richard Goff was, was, was being assessed on his A-licence. And the tutor at the time was Archie Knox, who was the Rangers assistant manager. Yeah. Uh, so Richard Goff was to shape us all up. I live in B11. I was actually playing centre half, and the young boys were, were doing most of the running. I was just standing at the back. <laughs> but, um, but without a word of a lie, Richard Goff's phone went off in the middle of his A license assessment. Right. And Archie Knox let him take the phone call. And I'm thinking, the, the credibility that, that that had for the course just went down the toilet for me. As someone wow. who was inspiring to get to that top level. Wow. That's what the practice that you're allowed to to demonstrate on, on the, the elite course, if you like. But probably more importantly, he told me something about Richard Goff as well. And it, um, and it came out of that, and I think that he got uh, his first ever managerial job and last ever managerial job at Livingston, of all places. Yeah. And, uh, it lasted, I think it was about three months, and 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 he was gone, and and he had no time. I always remember he had no time for the lads in the course. It was just all about him, and I thought he's going to go into a change room in his first managerial job, and all he's going to say to his players is, "When I played, this is how I did it." Well, absolutely, you know, and and you know as well as I do, Kev. Yeah, sorry, but what you did as a player was one thing. You're here for me now, not for you, and it was no. That, that credibility carries you probably in front of people and disappears after about 10 seconds you open and you go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's a brilliant story that, Dave. Absolutely class yeah. story. What a brilliant example. Okay, um, so, 
Dunfermline, uh, Livingston, UEFA B, UEFA A, uh, and then so you'd obviously done a, a combination of stuff. You worked for the Scottish Football Association as well for yeah. a while, I believe. Yeah. Um, so you've done, you know, a really, really kind of yeah. multi-layered kind of experience yeah. in the game before you came to Jersey. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about the Channel Islands. What was your experience? How did you find coming to Jersey in the first instance, both in terms of living just quickly and then and then from a football perspective? I mean, living, Kev, I mean, within half an hour of, of landing in Jersey for a holiday, uh, I fell in love with the place. Um, obviously, the weather was much better than where I had been in Scotland. <laughs> um, but genuinely, it was the friendliness of the people. I think that... Um, you know, that's probably similar in a lot of islands, Guernsey the same, even some yeah. of the Scottish islands that I'd visit, you know, there's a real feel of community and I actually yeah. really, really liked that. Um, so it was probably no surprise that I, I ended up over here. Um, football side of things, uh, in all honesty, it was a bit of a culture shock for me. Uh, and, and what I mean by that, and that was not to be, to, to be disrespectful, it was actually because coming from Scotland, where football is the be-all and end-all, yeah. come to somewhere else that it wasn't, uh, was the culture shock for me. I mean, basically what happens over here is that the football season finishes and the cricket season kicks in. You know, the nets come down and the stumps go up. And actually, yeah. for a lot of the time, it's the same guys. It was, they play football one season and they come and do cricket. Absolutely. And I, was, I, I, I couldn't understand that, kid because, you know, where I come from, as soon as the football season finishes, basically you're like a bear with a sore head until such times as the football season kicks back in again. And if you're yeah. lucky, you go for a holiday for a couple of weeks, but that's it, you're just desperate for the season to kick back in. But football um, wasn't the be-all and end-all. And actually, there was a positive in that because there's a you know, it's a much more active island. Uh, you know, there's a lot of sports, a lot of opportunities on the island. Facilities were fantastic for a, a, for a lot of different sports. So probably no surprise that, that as I say, football wasn't the be-all and end-all. But nonetheless, uh, it struck me straight away where it was a very good environment to develop young players. Um, first of all, I mean, I, I can remember getting off the plane and getting on the bus and we passed the, the, the public pitches and they all had their nets up and, and they, they keep them up through yeah. the football season. No one's going to come, come along and half-inch them. Yeah, and I'm going... <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> Must um, be a nice place. <laughs> yeah, and it's like when people come over to visit me, they you know they kind of go, oh, boy, someone's left the nets up. It's what happens. It's I mean it's normal practice over here. So you know we, we, we encourage that. But secondly, that you know the facilities at the local clubs, um, they're very much based around about communities. They all have a good clubhouse. A lot of them have a bar in there. Um, yeah. There is a good sense of community, um, and and I really like that. Um, and I think that, you know, my my, my initial perception was that um, it was a, a a good level of, of amateur football, and it's probably what you would expect from, um, you know, an environment where um, there is I mean there is a pathway in place. Of course, there is of which you know if you do well here, you can get flown to the UK, and you can probably you know if you're good enough, you'll get a, a senior contract and. You know the the pathways in place through the centre of excellences from from Jersey and, and Guernsey, and you know they do really well and they link well with, with a lot of the English clubs. But, but, but Jersey, Jersey, you know this is something I have a. It doesn't sit completely comfortably with me. Although we, we've had you know, Chris Tardif and you know young Alex Scott's just gone across, and obviously Letis and, and the like in, in the past, uh, Zico a little bit. Mm. For me, in the last 10, 15 years, Jersey's the, the island out of the two that's producing 
players to turn into professional game. And yeah. that's a bit frustrating for me as a Guernsey man. Yeah. But um, from uh, from your side of things, you must be getting something right. Oh, d definitely. You know, and, and there's a lot of work within our centre of excellence over here. Um, and, and it's very much about creating an environment. I think we invest heavily in coach education over here. Um, I think that the, the, the difficulty that was recognised 10, 15 years ago, as you say, is about exposing them to that environment and yeah. getting them island as much as possible. And, you know, if I look at the programme at our centre of excellence just now, Kevin, I mean, it's, it's incredible. I mean, um, this season they've been up to Liverpool, you know, and they've been playing Liverpool. They played Juventus. Um, you know, it's just teams that, that, that you just think, wow, it shouldn't even be in a radar. And, and whilst there's a bit of glamour attached to that, the spin-off to that, and what I've seen is that whenever we've actually played much more at the sort of the, the hard end stuff, which is basically the county cups, you know, you so you're going over and you're playing against other counties, if you like. Yeah. In the past, Jersey players have always taken about half an hour just to evaluate the opposition because, as you said, you you, you were one of them yourself, I'm sure. You kind of you were a nice Jersey lad, and and you know, all of a sudden you were coming into a very different environment where actually this game meant absolutely everything to these kids. Well, the other thing is that they're used to playing against people they know week in week out, and, yeah. and when yeah. you go play against players you don't know, yeah. you don't know how to work them out. This is one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. That, yeah. That, yeah. That, that, yeah, and, and you know, and, and it's a question I was always asking some of the guys, you know, how often do you actually wake up with the fire in the belly? You know, and kind of think, right, big game today, you know, and then because of the familiarity, you're, you're always at a disadvantage on you know, a small island. So, you know, undoubtedly there's been a lot of investment in our centre of excellence to make sure that the kids were, were getting that exposure to not only good opposition, but it prepared them uh, much, much better. So when it comes to, you know, the county cups and, and such like that, we're, we're able to get at people much, much quicker. Yeah. I think probably we are still at a lot of disadvantage, but uh, just because your kids, just from from the environment they're brought up in, um, in that they're nice kids over here, you know, and I go back to it, it's not the be all and end all. And, you know, it's, it's probably very rare that you come across a player that actually this means everything to them. They have yeah. to make sure that they will do what it takes to win a game of football. Uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's their DNA. It's, they're not brought up that way. Whereas in Scotland, uh, you know, it's, it's fight or flight when it comes to football. Football could be a lifeline for a lot of kids. And that's why yeah. it is. And, they'll, they'll, you know, and, and there's less there's less senior influence. Because, I mean, if, if I think back and, and this, my memories of, you know, football in the 80s, for example, and Guernsey versus Jersey, Marathi football and, and Uptons and stuff like that. Every Jersey side was full of jocks and full of scousers. And yeah, yeah. That influence must have had an influence on the local, both the seniors and the juniors who were coming through the ranks. And that kind of always felt to me like it gave Jersey a bit of an edge psychologically because that horrible, you know, Robbie Granny for three points type, type yeah. mentality. So, yeah. like you say, it's, it's not innate in Channel Islanders, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, I, I felt that inf a slight inferiority as a, as a Guernsey man yeah. going through that yeah. period of time when I across. And I think the thing that we've got to be proud of, uh, Kev, is that that influx isn't there as much. Uh, yeah, as many. That's, sports that's my point. Yeah, that, yeah. So you, you really have to develop from within, and yeah. actually, you're now working with literally Jersey kids, and you're, you're having to ensure that you know that DNA that you're coaching within it has to have that element of winning in it. Yeah. To win a game of football, and you know, and it's and and it's, it's 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 something that in Scotland we probably start with, and then all the technical stuff comes at the end of it. But actually, over here, we're really good at you know developing the technical and tactical, and and you know the the, the movement skills and everything. But actually, you know, we're, we're now recognising that 
that was the, the opportunity we had with it, the the Scots and the Scousers and everybody coming over. It, it brought that winning element to it a little bit more. It focused a little bit more on that, and that's a bit now that we've introduced by quite simply the the the, the pathways that were made to to some of the senior clubs. Yeah, yeah, good good stuff. Okay, so let's move on to Marathi football then. How um, what, what what did it feel like coming to, to to Marathi football for the first time, and what did you? How did how did you compare it with with your experiences in the game uh, on the mainland? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, Kevin, we both know that they're, they're great occasions. They're absolutely great occasions. Before I come to uh, uh, the Jersey Guernsey thing, I think one of my first experiences with Marathi football was actually in the semi final. Uh, oh, yeah. Now, for anybody who doesn't know Alderney, uh, it's it's like any other really small island. I don't know what the population is. Maybe two thousand, I think. 2000, yeah, yeah. And uh, you fly over to the, this this little remote island, 2,000 population, as I say. But actually, it kind of feels like the 2,000 population come along and support their football team for this one-off yeah. game. And uh, it's it's a very it's a surreal setting, you know. It's it's kind of in a dip, um, overshadowed by sort of you know fortresses and and yeah. hill sides and and uh, and the build-up to kick off. You just feel it, just starting to have that groundswell of people that's turned up. There's a good bit of alcohol involved. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, I think they have, is it one police officer that they've got over there? And that's his busiest day of the year. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, and, and it's, that, that was my sort of first experience of it, of, yeah. of Marathi football. And that you had to get through that game before you ended up playing Guernsey yeah. in the final. So, um, and, and actually, uh, back in those days, uh, they were really quite cute as well because always made sure that the park was an absolute mess. Yeah, yeah. If you were wanting to try to beat them at football, good luck with you, you know. Yeah. And ultimately, what you ended up doing was just kind of a fight football, back to front, just get the ball out way, get it in the box. Um, but as occasions, it was it was surreal, and then for, for this being my first my first experience of it, I just thought this this is just something I've not experienced before. Yeah. And obviously, you then get to to the Marathi final, which was which was against you guys, and. Uh, I uh, I always always preferred going over to Guernsey. Um, yeah. I think you know, and you know, to, uh, for anybody who doesn't know the rivalry, very much sort of Scottish English Rangers, you name it, and it's obviously Jersey Guernsey, and that uh, always felt as the uh, because of the smaller island and the probably the chip on the shoulder, the the Guernsey community really kind of got behind the guys, um, and and they made a, an occasion of it. You know, there was always you know the pre-match stuff. Um, we'd arrive at the ground an hour before kickoff, and the pipe band would be in full swing. There'd be all sorts of different things going on. But the biggest thing for me, the crowd were already in the ground at that time. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, you just thought, wow, we're in a game here. You know, this is the support of these guys are are, are, are getting today. And uh, you know, so which actually, from someone that that was partially the sort of motivational team talk, it kind of played right into my bag, really, because you know you just kind of went, "This is what you're up against, guys. Let's just yeah. go talk it back to them." And, and you know, and uh, it was, um, I, I mean, I was fortunate enough that we, we won um, three out of three, and um, albeit two of them were on penalties. Before you say it, um, <laughs> it's, uh, I, I, I genuinely had. Um, now that I'm in the chief exec post, I'm coming to the chief exec post. It's uh, it's going to be uh, an interesting situation for me to be in. That I'm actually I'm, I'm now more on the administration side of these things, and and one of the things that I want to ensure is that they are good events. You know, yeah. Guernsey are really really good at that. Jersey's good as well, but I just think that um, 
you know, Guernsey, that's it's their big day, and and you know, if, if they win it, oh wow, it's uh, you know, yeah, fair play to them. But um, I see, I was quite lucky in that way. Right. Yeah. Well, look, I was on the I was on the losing side for a couple of them, and uh, it was it was very hard very hard for me to take that. I don't really deal in regrets, um, or yeah, there, there, there's very little I get bitter about in life. Um, but I'm very bitter about that last that that, that one in 2008 it was my last competitive game really as a player, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it meant so much for me to, to to wear the shirt when I went back to the island, and it and it and it really rankles with me that I don't have a, a winner's medal as a player. Uh, but yeah, uh, I mean, brilliant, brilliant occasions. Yeah. Uh, you, you, you certainly were successful, pal, no doubt yeah. about it. You know, genuinely, Kev, I think that, that, that what was really, really good as well is that uh, always got on well with the, the Guernsey managers and likewise, you know, and Steve uh, Ogier was, was brilliant. And, and I think that was because that um, the pressure on you to win, and you, you'll know it fine well as, as a manager yourself, uh, it's massive. You know, you feel that expectation of the island, don't you? Um, and and it's it's quite a lonely position, uh, you know it can be. And um, and and I remember that there was that that, that particular game at your you, you know the, your last one uh, when it went to penalties. Uh, and I remember going over to Steve before the penalties, and I just thought, well, you and I just go for a pint because what will be will be. You know it. Uh, you know you just the pressure is just it's incredible. So when you get over the line, uh, particularly in your first one, you want to get that first one over the belt. Yeah. Um, it's a huge, huge relief. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. On that lonely, it's quite a lonely position. Uh, I think being a manager and a coach in general, you have to have a thick skin. You know, wherever you are, but, but over there, I remember um, getting various messages from people trying to explain to me how important it was, and they didn't need to explain to me because, yeah. you know, from from a very young age, Marathi football had been part of my my annual calendar, yeah. and, yeah. and I, I, you know, I. I, I was counting down the nights as a kid going to watch it, let alone as a as a player, as a or as a manager. So, um, but yeah, and, and and you know, with with Craig and, and the likes of yourself and what have you, I, I and I've had it in other sports as well. You know, Jersey Jersey and Guernsey is a very intense rivalry, and probably is, is softening a little bit as modern life kind yeah, of kicks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, even when it was horrible on the pitch, it was never horrible off it between. No, Ever, um, wherever we were, wherever we were in the world, whether it's Island, Island Games up in Orland or, uh, you know, or, or in Jersey or Guernsey or in the UK or wherever it was, it didn't matter. It was always, there was always a healthy respect. And some of my, you know, some, some really good friends of mine, you know, I've, I've, I've shared a pitch with you and they've yeah. worn red and I've worn green. So, uh, yeah, I'd agree with you. I'd agree with you. Important stuff, important stuff for me. It's still, still the most special game in the world to me, without a doubt. I always yeah, will be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, let's move on to future plans for the JFA then. So you're, you're going into the CEO role um, before too too long. Yep. Big responsibility. I think I think it's fair to say I'll try and be diplomatic about it. But there's been a lot of crit criticism angled at the JFA uh, over the last few years. Um, some of it coming from from the Guernsey side of things. You talk about the, the, the Marathi day as an example and the administration and setup and organisation and the facilities and all that stuff and. Um, as well as the fact that players haven't been getting the opportunities, perhaps in terms of competitive football, that, that, that you know the likes of Jack yeah. Boyle they could have done with yeah. it, you know, in his, in his in his probably best years as, a, as an adult footballer. What, um, what what do you see as the main challenges, and uh, you know, do you do you, do you see um, you know the, the future being you know seeing major change, or is it just going to be a you know steady evolution? 
Um, I think it's a difficult question until such times that I'm in, Kev. I mean, what I would say is that I'm probably starting in, in a better place than any of the predecessors um, that, that I know since my 15 years in Jersey. And uh, yeah. a new chief exec come in, <clears throat> or, or a new president is voted in, undoubtedly the first question is, what are you going to do about your senior games programme? And, and actually, uh, the evolution of the Jersey Bulls uh, this year has undoubtedly went a long way to sort of solving that problem because Absolutely. you know like Guernsey we now have a team in the English league and it uh, is hugely popular it's uh, brought new people into the game you know I'll go for a pint before the games and I'll, I'll see people that I normally wouldn't see at, at Jersey games Brilliant. that's great I love, I love to see football attracting new fans because they need it yeah, yeah and, and I think that you know what will be will be and and, and undoubtedly you know we'll support them to, to achieve their ambitions whatever those ambitions are um, but I think that, you know, sitting alongside that, we've obviously got our own island team as well and who are currently doing very well in the Interleague Systems Cup, uh, which if they win that, and, and obviously both islands have had a, a shot of winning that, you know, it's a great opportunity to represent England uh, in, in an amateur. Um, I think that's 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 one, just one point I'd make. Um, I mean, before Jersey Bulls and before GFC, for me, my opinion is that for step seven football in the UK, Jersey and Guernsey's leagues were the best. Was, yep. You know, they, they won in consecutive years, I think, didn't they? Yep. Or the two, two and three years and represented England. And yep. I think for me, below semi-professional football, they were the best two leagues yep. and were as good as some of the lower semi-professional yep. leagues themselves. So that was my opinion. Yep. Uh, still didn't mean that it was, you know, go back to echo some of your, your, your comments before about it wasn't as important football in the channel eyes as it was to people, you know, in, in on mainland and, and it really felt like that when I went back. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just I just just wanted to put that in there because it gives yeah. people who don't know Channel Island football a bit of a bit of an understanding of the kind of level of the Absolutely, Absolutely yeah. And I think that that, that certainly with the Guernsey FC thing and from my own personal experience I've seen it with the Bulls over here, I genuinely think that it's something that people have been waiting on, Kev. And yeah. I there's those new people that um I see at the games, and and I think ultimately that's because what what is brought to to the channel islands, what I call real football, and it's the football that you and I have just been talking about for for a while. It's that 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 football that involves that passion, that involves that that different environment where you you are getting the, the the you know the butterflies in the stomach. You don't know what you're going to. You know that you're going to have to adapt the way you play, the way you think, and you know it's um, that that brings out you know a, a totally different. Uh, philosophy for a lot of people and, and, and their views towards football and you know I now go to Springfield and, and, and there's a crowd singing you know I mean that that, that was unheard of unless yeah. but now to see that on a weekly basis is great you know and ultimately it's because um, they're on the, on, the, on the same ladder if you like as Man United Liverpool albeit they're on the bottom rung of it but yeah. they're on the same ladder and you know what will be will be over the next few years, and um, as I say, I think that you know undoubtedly they're doing a lot of that job uh, for providing for the better players. Yeah, well, I think you only have to look at the second year of GFC's existence, FA Vars semi-final, I think four and a half thousand, um, that was the home crowd against Spennymoor. Spennymoor under Jason Ainsley is still still managing them today, um, and we know reasonably well is now. They're now Conference North playoffs uh, scenario. They're, they're, they're there or thereabouts professional, heading towards professionalism. 
uh, and GFC competed while they were playing in the Combined Counties League with a side like that, um, and like say in front of that type of crowd. And I think the way Jersey Bulls have started, is it 30 out of 30 now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that, I mean, which I don't care what level people think that league is at in, in terms of, you know, all of the step six leagues across the country. Um, you don't win 30 games of football in any league without being without being a decent side. Yeah, and they're playing a good brand of football as well, Kev. Yeah. You know, I think that, the, I mean, it will be an interesting one. I know that the Guernsey, they've kind of said, right, you know what, we're, where we are, uh, we're, you know, we're, we're going to sort of ensure it it's a local club. We're not bringing anyone in. Uh, if it means that we get up or whether we stay where we are, it doesn't matter to us, but this is a local club. Yeah. Um the, the Bulls, the Jersey Bulls, I don't know what their their, their vision for it is. Uh, obviously, over here, uh, we have one professional sports club, and that's a rugby club that play in the English Championship. Yeah. And I was actually involved in about 15 years ago when they started bringing in some of the semi-pro guys. Uh, some of them come in and work for, for me at Sport Development and okay. then took them up that, that to that next tier, if you like. And then, you know, within four years, they were fully professional. Uh, and whilst that brings a level of championship rugby and then some good crowds to Jersey. Oh, yeah. Equally, there's probably a lot of people who would have preferred it back in the day because it was that local club. That yeah. was that pathway. You know, their academy very much fed into their first team, uh, which now that that's, you know, very rare if that's going to happen if you see yeah. a Jersey playing first team, first team rugby. So, you know, it'll be interesting to see how, how the Bulls approach it. I genuinely think that they'll, they'll, in the next two years, they'll be playing in the same league as Guernsey. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, then we'll see um, where they want to go from there. But I think there's, you know, there the, the would be, I mean, and I'm sure they have, I'm sure they've looked at the model that Guernsey used. I think that undoubtedly, uh, you know, using a younger group of players in, in year one to develop them for year two and then year three, uh, I think that they've, they've they've taken on a bit of that rather than just going yeah. over your best absolute best island players who might give you three years before they kind of go and have kids or or kind of say right that's enough for me. But I think yeah. it's important that they build in a, a level of sustainability there. I think well, next be an academy for them. I think the the only thing I'd say is that I think step five it's always a tough league to get out of. Um, the next the next one you know the, the, there's usually only one goes up um, and to get out of that at the first time of asking. Would be would really rubber stamp the quality of that team. Um, yeah, I, yeah. No, no team does that unless they're a top top team. Go straight yeah. through. Uh, because step five is like I say, it's such a competitive league. Yeah, yeah. More games and and because it's kind of it's not. I don't know how you describe this. That that level below Isthmian League football is a little bit less travelling for the UK boys. So you get some lads there picking up a couple hundred, couple hundred quid a week. Absolutely. So we're travelling half an hour down the road because they can't be bothered to travel, even though they're good enough to play at you know, their, their yeah. professional level. So yeah. um, it's it's a tough league and uh, it'll be interesting to see how they get on. I always, you know, I said that about about GFC and they were lucky that actually two sides went up that year because I, I think I think they finished second, I think I'm right in saying. Um, although that was obviously down to it, it was a big, you know, a, a big backlog of games as well, but um, it was a fantastic achievement to, to, to go straight through. And I think if Jersey Bulls does that, then um, yeah. hats off to them for sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I think in, in terms of my role at the, the GFA, Kev, I think it's uh, what I want to ensure is that actually football is much more inclusive. Uh, yeah. I think that, you know, undoubtedly, as I just said earlier on, with my sports development background, understanding that 
you know, there are significant barriers to participation. We need to understand what those are. Over here, as an example, we've got a significant Portuguese population, yeah. but we you know we don't have a Portuguese football team um, playing in the league, which you know we, we have to really question and, and, and ask why that is. And um, you know, similarly, I think that I want to use the popularity of football as well to really engage much more in the community. Uh, yeah. Because football is the most popular sport in the world, so we, we have to use that, use the strength of it. And, you know, some of the things that I was talking about, whether it be mental health or academic attainment or, um, you know, whatever, I think that football can have a huge part to play in that. Yeah. I think part of my business plan and my vision that I presented to, to, to the GFA was very much growing the business side of the game and getting more people involved. And, you know, even things like, you know, the growth of walking football. Uh, you know, for, for, for some of the old guys, and yes, I play it every now and again myself. Yeah, yeah. Some would say you probably played walking football a few years ago, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <you're right. laughs> but uh, for a lot of the guys that I see coming along to that, you know what, it's actually the highlight of the week. Now, you know, if, here we are, we're talking about a sport that is, you know, all we need more volunteers. And, 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 you know, there you go, you've got an opportunity to, for some of these guys, some of whom we know have, know have had mental health issues, some have had physical health issues, yeah. an opportunity to just to reintroduce them into the game again through volunteer right. stuff, you know, so it's very much with joining the dots because, you know, I always use analogy, if we're going to grow the game, I could easily grow my hair, but it'd be the same hair. If I want to get more hair, I'm going to have to do something that actually makes me grow more hair. And I think that on a small island where you're restricted with the number of people, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to attract those people that currently don't engage in football. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and that's, that's a challenge. Um, but it's a challenge that, you know, as time goes on, we're now, as I say, just starting to understand what some of the real life barriers are. And I think that one of the criticisms I've always had in, of sports development and, and, and as someone who's worked in it for a long, long time, is that I think until you've walked in someone's shoes, you, you know, you don't really, really understand uh, a lot of the barriers, you know, ultimately, um, you know, a lot of us are, are middle class people, not me, I'm working class through and through ultimately, but I think that genuinely for the people that make some of those decisions for to be middle class people, how can you really have a vested interest if you don't genuinely understand the struggles that people go through on a day to day basis? Yeah. And, and, and so almost that, that that vision that I've created, undoubtedly, it needs to start right at the very bottom and understand that. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I, I've just written down there about your kind of social mobility. But bottom line is, Dave, you're you're a guy who can relate and identify with people, you know, in every in every part in every part of society. And I'm I'm absolutely certain that you make a, a massive success of being uh, the CEO of uh, of the JFA because, as I say, I think you just have that that way of getting on with people and identifying with people and um, you've you've walked you've walked in plenty of people's shoes i would suggest over over the years yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And, I'm, and i'm sure that your your approach your style your character your personality um will make football a more desirable product in jersey for a start regardless of any any you know any planning and, uh, and execution that you put into it but just just from your personality uh, anyway that's enough smoke blowing up your backside um <laughs> let's let's just you're, you're, you're sorry. I was just saying the reason that we love the game, Kev, is because it's full of opinions. Everybody's yes. got opinions about something, and uh, you know, undoubtedly, that is going to be the challenge um, when you're in that role. Uh, yeah. You know, as, as 
no, no to the sum up to a manager listening. You know, I'm pretty sure when you were the Guernsey manager that you were getting told that you should take a look at this one, you should pick that one. And, you know, ultimately you will pick the team that you think one's going to win in the park and, and, and during the game. And, you know, it's no different when you're in the chief exec role, that, that you have your own vision um, and that you stick to your vision. And, you know, if it wasn't to work out, then at least it's been my vision and it's not been influenced by, by anyone else. And that, that was certainly my tactic when I was a manager. That I thought, well, if I'm going to get beat, then I know it's, it's my decisions that's, that's, that's made that. So, yeah. 100%, 100% agree with that, mate. You, you know, we're not, none of us know it all and there's, there's always more information that can be consumed. But uh, as you say, ultimately, you're the one who, who has to make the decisions you've got to be comfortable with them. And uh, with you, 100% on that. Um, let's just finish off with uh, a, a little bit on, on coaching, um, player develop, development, trends, practices. We talked a little bit about kind of tactical uh, the way that the game's developed into a slightly more tactical kind of yeah. uh, ta the consciousness of tactics because of I, I think Monday Night Football Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher for example and tactics boards everywhere mini Mourinho kind of culture um, there is a lot more I think tactical um, focus from coaches players fans everyone and I, and I think that has a detrimental impact on the players that we're producing anywhere. I'm talking about anywhere. It could be Guernsey, Jersey, the UK, Scotland, Spain, wherever. It's it for me. I still want to see real coaches, real player developers produce in, uh, individuals who can handle the ball, who can. Personality is a word I like as a coach. Yeah. I want yeah. players to have personality and to impose themselves. So yeah. if you're a wide player. Go show me how to beat your fullback and, and create opportunities for your strikers. If you're a defender, make sure that you you demonstrate that you you have the kind of personality that loves to keep a clean sheet, that will not will not sleep at night if you're not you're not defending and you're not blocking and you're not stopping and you're not tackling. Likewise, if you're a striker, if you get in the box, you know make sure that you're the one who everyone identifies with as the guy who pulls a trigger quicker than anyone else because he can make that half a yard of space and get a shot, rather than a team of number 10s and number 4s and number 6s all play nice, tidy, tactical football. And I'm, I'm, I'm going on a bit of a rant there, but I mean, I, you know, I'm, I say it with conviction because I think it's it's something that's a real challenge for the game. A lot of it is about vanity, Kev. Genuinely, I think that, that, that since the evolution of, as you see, the Monday night footballs and stuff, I think that uh, it's given a platform for uh, coaches to now have an opinion that, that they possibly wouldn't have had in the past. And, yeah. uh, you know, we all believe that you know, if this formation had been used in that particular game, then the outcome would have been very, very different. And, and, and you know, I'm 100% I'm, I'm with you. Um, I mean, for me, I'd, I kind of go back to me, uh, my, my own sort of development as a coach. And I suppose that I am a product of the Scottish system. I went through the, the Scottish system. I, I think it is a good, good system. Um, I think that you know, from a coach head side of things, it was very much based on the Dutch philosophy. Uh, yeah. Small sided games, of which he ensured that you know young players understood the principles of width, support, depth, penetration, stretching the game, uh, and within that, the, the technical ability that you had to have to, to do that. And I don't think there's any one aspect apart from set pieces really that you can't get across in a four four v four game. And, and so. Yeah. And, and I say that that was the, the Scottish FA philosophy, and I thought, yeah, and to this day, I kind of stick to that. Yeah, um, I like it. I like it. Yeah, and and I think that the problem is though is the culture, and 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 the culture as a nation, and I think that ultimately you can have that that 
understanding of the game, but ultimately you still have a win-at-all-costs mentality. And I still see a youth coaches, um, particularly in Scotland, quite a bit in England, not so much here, I'm delighted to say. But I think until such times as we really understand what player development looks like and, and, and the environment needs to be right to allow that bit of freedom, to allow mistakes to happen, um, you know, and, and I, I buy into the player-centred uh, learning a lot, but I still think there needs to be some sort of coach-led, um, you know, input into that. I think we maybe kind of went a little bit too far into the player-centred approach because I see players making the same mistakes time and time and time again. Right. And, you know, it's important that you, you 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 are able to to manage mistakes. But I think that my experience over the years is that even at you know, under nines, under tens, under even in you know fun festival tournaments, it's still all about winning the game, and and I think that Gordon Strachan actually hit the nail on the head uh, a couple of months ago when he said, you know what, in Scotland we're very good at producing average players, and what that means is that you know they they go through the academies and and as long as they're winning at under sixteens and under seventeens and maybe getting a little nibble at sort of first team level, that's when the kids actually think they've made it because. Yeah nibble at 17 and and I just don't see that hunger in that 17 to 20 year old um, it, it bracket and um, and as I say so but up until the age of sort of 16 there's just all this vanity coaching and players are not being coached to improve you know do we do we really know how to improve players what is it you know what, what does and that, that's that's different for every single player yeah and, and as I say I was probably one you know, my dad was an old-fashioned uh, Bobby on the beat. That was his job, and he would just shout and scream. And and, and a lot of the times, it, it probably helped me because I thought, right, I'm going to shut him up, and it probably did give me an extra gear. But that's yeah. certainly not going to work for a majority of players. So, no, no, you know, no. just, just just one question, Dave. Yeah. Where, where do you see yourself as a? I mean, I categorise coaches. I think it's important. I think. I mean, some some coaches are are able to adapt and, and work with any level, age group. Yeah. Whatever, but what, what would, what, where would you see yourself as a as a senior coach, as a development coach, as a as a as a, as a youth coach, or as a, as a as a kind of foundation phase kind of specialist? Where, where do you see your your and where do you enjoy coaching most? Uh, where do I enjoy? Probably about the under eighteen level, Kev. Uh, yeah, I think because I think before you know the footballer, you've got to know the know the person, and, right. and I always enjoy. Uh, having a, a you know a lot of banter with the boys and then and making them feel as if it's a relaxed environment. Under twenty ones, I still take the jersey under twenty ones just now. Um, yeah. And you know, it's it's for me, it's probably about the challenge and that uh, the reason that I like it is just for the reasons that I've said is that I I think that for a lot of them they believe the learning stops at about fifteen and sixteen because they've got to a point where they're on a little nibble at first team football. Yeah. And. I, after that, and first team coaching is just very much about uh, physical preparation, a little bit of tactics, set pieces, and you know, and, and, and drills after drills after drills. But my philosophy in coaching is that without the learning, the winning is just not the same. And every single one of my sessions uh, that I've always put on over the years, even in a PE lesson in a school, or whether it be a senior level, even, you know, Marathi team level over here, every single session there has to be learning. They play, they, they train to learn. Yeah. Um, now that's hopefully that's not the vanity within me to say yes I have improved that player because I think that the vanity probably comes in 
uh, unrealistic expectations of you're putting on all these fancy drills just because they look good. Yeah. Um, I think that for me, it's always been about challenging the players to, to the right level where the learning is maximised. I think you can almost overcoach them, and I see a lot of that, you know, tactical input, tactical input, even technical input too much. Um, so I think it's very much sort of finding that, that right balance. One of the things that I've actually got a little bit of concern about just now, which is, is I see obsessions going on with, with coaches. So the latest thing is like playing out for the back, right? And and it's almost going like, to shunned on now that if the keeper actually hits a fantastic 60-yard pass out to the guy who's playing right, right left yeah. because he's not played it for the back. And I've seen it, I've witnessed it. Coaches shouting, why we're not playing it out for the back? And, you know, it's... um. We went through a phase when, when Pep with the, 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 the Barcelona sides, where actually everybody tried to play like Barcelona because that's the way the game needed to be played. Well, that's all well and good if you've got these top world-class players in every single day that you've got a philosophy that you know works with those players. And, and you know, if you've seen Pep on the, on the, the documentaries about how he emphasises philosophy, that we have to continue to play. That's, you know, we're, even if we're getting beat, we're still playing this this sort of same way. Yeah, and and that works at that level. But I saw this boom, uh, uh, sort of grassroots, and as if that's the only way that you can play the game now. Uh, and similarly, I'm seeing it more now that you have to always, always play out for the back. Now, if you look at Arsenal, the beginning of last year, you know they were they were getting conceding goal after goal after goal, and that's at the top level. But here we're now. I'm all for playing out for the back, Kev. I think good football is really, really important. I think that. You know, we have to make sure it's an attractive game. But ultimately, young players need to know that there's always option A, B, C and D. Absolutely. Just about we have to stick to that, that one philosophy. And that's the bit that when I coach, I try to put a framework in place, but I'll always look at the adaptations of, of what you can and can't do and involve the players in that. And that's yeah. the bit that I always challenge the the under-18s, under-21s, they say, right, go on, and you've got yourself in this position. Tell me what the best options are. Yeah. What other options you look at? You know, and, and and just allowing them that level of expression. Um, and, and just, as I say, still managing the mistakes. And I still think there's a level of, of management in there that I don't see enough of as well. I see a lot of textbook coaches who follow the manual. And, 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 and ultimately... Well, that is great, and they've got a qualification from it. The coach head stuff is a framework, um, and I, I liken that to referees as well, Kev. I'm always asked about referees. I think that you know, refereeing ultimately the framework is the rules of which the game has got to abide by. Yeah. But you and I will know a good referee is the one who manages the game. You've got to, yeah, you've got to apply it and interpret it in yeah. you know, the right yeah. way, right yeah. for those players. Yeah. And yeah. coach coaching for me is 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 very very similar. You know, you yeah. use that framework and how you allow players to express themselves whilst constantly learning is, is, is vital for me. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. I 100% I, I agree on, on those observations. I think I, I am finding that a lot of coaches, even top, top coaches, I mean, really, really top coaches who perhaps became obsessed. I mean, I, I use Michael Beale as an example. You know, he said to me that uh, there was a time when he, he was a little bit too obsessed with with sessions, with how sessions looked, with the cones, where the cones were, and the, the organisation and what have you. Of course, we all need to be, you know, one of the biggest kind of parts you need to nail as a coach is to be prepared. But actually, 
in terms of performance, it's about the people, it's about the relationships, it's about the connections, it's about the way that you communicate uh, and the way that you help them to understand, not whether or not you had you know, this many cones set out in this particular session, this many minutes. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I think people, I think there's kind of like a journey of discovery that takes coaches, you know, from maybe that, that, that kind of textbook scenario right the way around to back maybe where they started in some respects in terms of about human nature what they know to be true about human nature still needs to be applied as a coach and as a manager absolutely and i, I think that one of the things i'm quite passionate about kev is coach mentoring i was yes. very that, that through my career I always had a, a good coach mentor um you know i had a guy called hugh mccann at Alawa who i worked with for about five years and hugh was i would class him as a professor of the game you know okay. he's very well qualified um, but some of the intricacies in which you would go into the game that were really thought through, um, not just technically, but tactically, and even some of the values that they, that they work with as a, as a coach as well. So, you know, you're going to change, you've got a first team changing and they're taking the first team for a, for a friendly. And he would always say to me before he went in, I'm never ever going to criticise a young player in this changing room. It's always going to be the experienced guys that get it. Yeah. You know, you've witnessed over the years that so many managers, they use a cop-out and they just criticise the young players and they're frightened to actually really have a pop at the, the experienced players. And that's something that, again, I've very much brought into my, my, my coaching career and, and senior football that I will never, ever criticise any young player. They're there to enjoy themselves. They're there to be led by the senior player. The senior players are about responsibility. Um, and if they're not doing it, they'll be the ones that get told because the young boys, they're, they're still in that huge journey of, of development. Absolutely. That's... Um... That, that kind of, you know, the, the peaks and troughs and, and they only start to even out and they should theoretically, if a successful player becomes successful because he evens out those troughs, yeah. but that takes time and uh, I agree that the young players need to be given that time and space. And don't get me wrong, there's values, there's, you know, there's there's, a, there's prerequisites, you know, in terms of the respect and in terms of the, the personal standards that, that should never drop, but from a football perspective, I couldn't agree with you more. But I think one of the big issues that we have around about coach mentoring is our approach to it, Kev. I think that you know, for a lot of us, we're very guarded, and yep. for someone to come in and work with you, um, you know, a lot of people are, are really uncomfortable with that, and it's something I, I, I thrived on. I, I want, you know, and if you're a, if you if you're a coach, is worth your salt. You should be. You should always be inward and outward looking. Um, That's the, the transparency that for me that you know transparency is so important. And whether it's the coach mentoring, um, yeah. you know. Um, from that perspective or whether it's simply just about opening up your methods so i don't know there'll be certain coaches out there who will have you have you believe that you need to keep everything in-house and that you can't share what you're doing on the training ground but if it's that good yeah then most of it you should be able to share okay set pieces and particular match prep preparation i understand but if it's that good and you know you're you're, you're as good as you, you say you are then open yeah. it up and, and allow people to come in and you might just learn something if someone gives you a little bit of advice or just a tweak yeah. or whatever. And yeah, I could, couldn't agree more. But I mean, as regards coach mentoring, um, yeah, I, I mean, it feels to me like online, I mean, we had Tony Lee on here a few weeks ago and fantastic guy who's helped him to, in, in, in kind of a remote way to mentor so many people, the likes of Dick Bate, for example, who obviously yeah. you know, is yeah. an absolute legend and, yeah. you know, hugely fortunate enough to be in his presence, presence yeah. for a short time and, and yeah. I think these kind of guys now people understand the importance and the influence that they have not only on themselves but on other people and, yeah. and that maybe we need to find more of those kind of characters for the next 20 years. 
yeah, absolutely. And you know, and it's something that I, I, I I've, I've been doing now for about uh, a year or two in Ireland, uh, and a couple of young coaches, and it's, you, you get it's so rewarding, Kev. Yeah, uh, okay. good enthusiastic coaches, and uh, you know, two guys that's come back off a sports development degree, and actually recognise that there's a value to be had by you know just getting a different point of view on things and 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 yeah. challenging them and checking. And it's uh, it's really it's, it's been great for me as well. But I do that because I'm passionate because I had more one, and I, I genuinely think that if any coach is, is willing to, to to sort of really move on in the game, then undoubtedly having someone that can, you know, have that level of influence on you will, will do you no end of good. 100%, 100%. Yeah. I, I dare say you're fulfilling that role for a lot of people or have done, you know, a, a, for, for a lot of people in Jersey over the last few years, albeit in a, in a you know, not necessarily a structured way, but just in yeah, a more kind of yeah. organic way that, as it's come. So, okay, Dave, um, this I think is probably the longest one I've done. Um, I haven't covered everything. Um, there, there's more that I could and would like to cover, um, but I'm not sure it will be possible to get this out online without without cutting it before too long. Such will be the size of the actual file. Um, it's been an absolute, uh, uh, just a real joy to share uh, an hour and a half with you talking football, not just football. Uh, you know the, the the influence that football has in society. Uh, obviously, reminiscing a little bit, uh, and, and we could have done that for many more hours. I dare say. Um, but mate, really, really appreciate you coming on. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I think the people who, who listen to this, whether that's on the on a podcast or, or watch it on YouTube, I think will really enjoy um, what you've got to say. You might even have some friends in Guernsey or some, some fans in Guernsey after this. You never know. <laughs> listen, Kev, thanks for having me on. It's been an absolute blast. And as you say, I think we could have we could have went on for for probably a bit. Another couple of hours at least. Right. Definitely, definitely. Well, it, it, it will not be the last time we speak, obviously, no. Big Man. But, um, listen, um, all the best in your, your new role um, with the J JFA. I'm sure you'll be a massive success. Um, obviously, I wish you all the success in the world, with the exception of any time that your teams take the field against uh, Guernsey. Um, that goes without saying. Um, yeah. I've got to get that in there at the end. Um, but no, really, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure and um, yeah, just a, a privilege, to be honest, to share some time with you, Pam. No, I appreciate it, Ken. Top man. Thanks a lot, Dave. All the best. Cheers, you too. Bye-bye.